Ziploc that Right on my waistline is why I kept that strap I remember nights, I didn't remember nights I damn near went crazy, I had to get it right Now I'm your favorite rapper's favorite rapper Hey, now I'm your favorite trapper's favorite trapper The absolute truth, yeah, no joke Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Trap Draw. My name is Randy. Have a great episode this week. I'm flying solo. TC's up in Georgia playing some golf this week. We're going to do a chop session next week to close out 2022 on the Trap Draw. But today's conversation is great. It's with Stephen Proctor. He's the author of a new book called The Long Golden Afternoon, Golf's Age of Glory, 1864 to 1914. It's just an exceptionally researched and written book about a 50-year period that plays such an important role in the evolution of golf. Candidly, it's about a lot of people, places, events that I don't know a lot about. Uh, So it offers wonderful context to the history of the game. Obviously would make a great gift idea for those golf nuts in your life. So I'm thrilled to have Steven on. Steven's been a prior guest. We talked about his first book called Monarch of the Green, which is a biography of young Tom Morris, which is exceptional. And then Steven also joined for a golf book panel discussion that I did uh, along with a few other gentlemen, Jim Hartzell and and Michael Wolf and... um, yeah, they, I mean, they're all wonderful historians of the game. Steven, no different. Uh, just seems like he has an encyclopedic knowledge. And um, his new book is just so well-researched and written. I think folks will really enjoy it. Before I bring him on and start that discussion, though, I want to thank one of our sponsors today. And that is our good friends at Gooder. This episode is brought to you by Gooder. Gooder makes $25 active sunglasses for anyone. Their polarized golf sunglasses are lightweight, comfortable. They don't move when you swing. And again, yes, they start at $25. I'm talking no slip, no bounce, all polarized, look great on and off the course. The golf sunglasses specifically are built with a golf-specific lens. So whether you call them sunny, shade, sunglasses, whatever, they all have HD contrast and performance without the hefty price tag. And I would encourage folks to buy multiple pair. I mean, at that price, get get some golf sunglasses, keep them in your bag, get another pair, keep them in your car, get some glasses to keep in the office. Uh, they're, they're just great to have around. Listeners, right now, you can use the code TRAPDRAW, all one word, TRAPDRAW, for 15% off your entire order at gooder.com. So try them out. Treat yourself to a pair or two. Go to gooder.com, that's G-O-O-D-R.com, and get 15% off your entire order when you use the code TRAPDRAW at checkout. And in addition to that, all orders over $50 get free shipping within the United States. So that's 15% off with the code TRAPDRAW at www.goodr.com. Look good, golf gooder. Thank them for sponsoring the TRAPDRAW. And now let me uh, let me get into my conversation with Stephen Proctor about his new book. Stephen, good afternoon. Thanks for joining me on the Trap Draw once again. How are you today? I am just great, Randy. Thank you for having me back. It, it really means a lot to an author to get a chance to talk on a podcast like this, so I'm very grateful. And of course, I've always enjoyed being on your show and listening to it. Well, that's very nice of you to say. Uh, candidly, chatting with authors such as such as yourself is among my favorite things to do. Um, so this is uh, this is great for both of us. Let me ask you here uh, to start with your biography of young Tom Morris, your, your first book, Monarch of the Green, uh, traces his life up until uh, his tragic death in, I believe, 1875. So this new book is a 50-year period that it, it starts a little bit before the death of young Tom Morris, but was this a natural progression after completing that Tom Morris biography to, to kind of talk about those next 45, 50 years of, of golf history for you? It most certainly was, Randy. And, and the reason is, you know, as I started to dig into the Tom Morris biography after having visited St. Andrews and seen his incredible monument in the church uh, cemetery there and been so inspired to write that book, you know, deep diving into that, it became very clear to me that 
a huge development happened in a very brief period, really, in history, if you think about it, especially in golf history, starting with the introduction of the gutty ball in 1848. You know, in 50-year period, golf goes from being a game that had been played for 400 years only by Scots and to be unknown everywhere else, to be a worldwide obsession and to be almost in every way the modern game that that you know now. And I, I, it really struck me that that is such rapid progress uh, for any game or even just in general that I thought that would be a really great story is just to find out how it all happened. And, you know, of course, I was deep into the Tommy book when I had that realization, but I had realized then that the very first thing that happened was Tommy. You know, Tommy came along and woke up the sporting world to this game, uh, especially south of the border in England where he had a lot of family ties. In any case, uh, you know, 1864 is the date I chose to begin because that is the first truly English golf course opens on that date. And at the end of the war, golf has already become a modern game and all the things that are part of my book have unfolded. So that's how it started. I was digging into it and I realized, wow, this is a 50-year explosion. And that's a great sequel to this book about Tommy. Yeah, I'm struck by, uh, you mentioned some of the equipment stuff. It, it feels like some of the arguments and discussions and, uh, you know, where is the game headed? Th- those t- sorts of things. I mean, they've they've been around for hundreds of years and uh, we were still having those same conversations. So I, I want to get into that in, in just a little bit and I want to get into detail of your new book, but I don't think I've ever asked you this question I, and I wanted to ask you, um, you have a long history personally. Uh, you've worked at a number of very uh, reputable newspapers. You've been an editor. But in the last decade or so, you've turned your attention to, to golf and golf writing and specifically golf history. How did that all come about for you? What, what was the genesis for your interest in not only golf, but the history of golf? Well, you know, I, um, I didn't take up golf until I was 41. I'm 65 now. Uh, and you know, I guess like a lot of people, I became incredibly obsessed with golf in a relatively short period of time once I had taken it up. And, you know, my natural uh, inclination as a person is always to look at the history of a thing that I'm interested in. Uh, you know, I've had a lot of different passions over time. Uh, when I was in high school, I was obsessed with chess. And so I wanted to read everything I could about Paul Morphy and Bobby Fischer and uh, the great chess players of old. It's just, I don't know, that's how I've always thought about things. Uh, So I started to read into golf history a little bit uh, when I uh, began playing the game. And uh, I had some help with that because uh, my first golf teacher, who had like the perfect golf teacher name of all time, his name was Mason Champion. (laughs) And when Mason gave a lesson, he usually included a book as part of the assignment. And so my first lesson was uh, re- he asked me to, to buy and read George Pepper's The Story of Golf, which is, you know, your basic coffee table book about the history of the game general overview. But I found it fascinating and there looked like a lot of pathways to wander down. So that is where I started with it. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I, I became obsessed with reading about golf history when I uh, decided that, you know, I think. I think I'm going to need to retire early. Journalism game is uh, doesn't look like it's a long-term future, at least not one that's very much fun for a traditionalist like myself. Uh, and I wasn't doing as good a job as I needed to at changing, I suppose, with the times uh, to be more uh, digitally oriented or whatever. But uh, I'm, I've been a word person, and it was a little hard transition for me. So uh, I thought, well, you know, writing, I'm going to need to keep writing. That's, that's like my lifeblood. So I decided I would write about golf history. Uh, and then started planning to do it by continuing to read uh, ridiculous numbers of golf history books as I do even today. So, yeah, and, and I think that that is evident in this book. I mean, the 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 bibliography that you attach to it, the notes that you have throughout the book, it's it's very extensively researched. You can tell it's um, very much a historian's type of writing, and so um, yeah, I guess. I appreciate that. I want to congratulate you on that. Uh, I'm curious, when you wrapped up, or I guess, as you said, you were in kind of in the midst of the, the book about Tommy, it, when when this kind of 50-year period and, and 
how important it is for the game of golf and and the, you know the path that the game has been on since this 50 year period when that kind of became a realization to you how how did you get your arms around writing about such a broad time of history i i guess what i'm trying to ask is 50 years you could have had so many different entry points. You know, you're not writing a 1,000-page multi-volume work. How, how did you arrive at, you know, sort of the main characters or the main thrust of the book in which to kind of talk about this time period? That's a great question, Randy. It really is because uh, I had lots of different thoughts about how to pursue this book over time as I was gathering up the material. And at various times, I thought, you can't do this. This is too hard. It's too big uh, to find a story story. And then, you know, as I was, um, one of the things that I'd read was Horace Hutchinson's memoir. Horace Hutchinson is one of the great figures in all of early golf, really the first great golf writer, the person who was Bernard Darwin's inspiration. So in a lot of ways, the beginning of all things for uh, golf writing that was wildly popular. Great thinker, great golfer himself, two-time winner of the amateur championship. Anyway, he has a memoir called 50 Years of Golf in which he recounts his really significant position in the evolution of the game. And um, one of the things he remembers most vividly is John Ball winning the 1890 amateur championship, the open championship in 1890 as an amateur golfer. And his expectation was that uh, John winning as an amateur would freak out the professionals and, uh, you know, because it's their championship. And, and here's some upper crust uh, Tosh coming in and stealing their title. But that didn't bother them at all. The only thing that bothered them was that Ball was an Englishman. And uh, so it, it occurred to me as I as I was doing the what I would call the nitty gritty research down into what happened every single year and all the months of those years. Uh, it dawned on me that the thing that was the driver from a story perspective is this great rivalry uh, between England and Scotland, which of course predates golf and very many other things as well. Uh, but that became the, the way of telling the story was the battle between England and Scotland for supremacy at golf and all of the things that that sparked so heroes on both sides who become your characters, Freddie Tate, John Laidley, Willie Park Jr., Andrew Kirkcaldy on the Scottish side, and James Braid. Then you have John Ball, Harold Hilton, John Henry Taylor, and Varden on the other side. So you have your characters coming together. But the other thing uh, that really uh, spoke to me too was the number of, of, of other thematic threads that were part of this era. So one of them is people of high intellectual caliber and education applying all of their smarts to golf, which is a constant from that day until this day. Another one is this, and that, you know, the huge evolution of technology, including the, the, the one that started it all, the introduction of the gutty ball. And then in 1901 and 1902, you have the introduction of the new rubber cord ball, a very, you know, epochal change in the game of golf. And the introduction of a new way of looking at the laying out of golf courses. So you have huge themes there that help drive your story, but the framework of your story is that rivalry. And that's, that's how I ended up trying to tell the story of a transformative age. Basically, the, I would think of the book as a coming-of-age story for the game of golf and how it came into being the game you know today and then told with that framework. I love that. I love that. Uh, can I can I follow up and ask you to kind of set that stage of England versus Scotland, um, at least from a golf perspective? I, I think obviously dominated by Scotland, the, the game is the Scottish national pastime. Uh, talk about how that game started to seep down south and and this rivalry between England and Scotland started to emerge. Well, it's interesting because part of it came from the Tommy story. In 1870, Tommy retires the belt. There's no trophy to play for. There's a lot of bickering you know, within Presswick about what to do, whether we should just buy another belt and go on and make the challenge start anew. Or the more forward-thinking members of Presswick wanted to include St. Andrews and Musselboro because they thought if this championship is going to be what it 
can be. It needs to be for all of Scotland, not just Presswick. And so, and in the end, they carried the day. But there was a year interregnum in which uh, there was no open championship because there wasn't a trophy and there wasn't an agreement between clubs to host it. The Royal Liverpool, which we now know as Hoylake, stepped into the breach. Royal Liverpool is such an apocal golf club in the history of the game. Basically, all of the things we love about golf today, many of the things we love about golf today start there. So uh, Royal Liverpool staged a giant tournament for professionals in 1872, in the spring of 1872. And uh, ultimately, later that year, the open squabble would be concluded. But in between, there was this giant event. They, they paid more money than the open. But the most important thing is if you were a professional, they paid for your expenses. They picked up your train fare. They, had, they cooked dinner for you at night. That was so revolutionary in terms of the way professionals, professionals were usually treated like dirt. You know? So that was big. And the reason they did that is they wanted Tommy. They wanted Tommy and they wanted Davy Strath as his rival and friend. So, but what's interesting about it, Randy, and how it ties back to this book is one of the guys watching the tournament with bated breath is a 10-year-old kid, and his name is John Ball. His father is the owner of the Royal Hotel, uh, which is uh, where the Hoylake Golf Club had its headquarters. He grew up with golf, but he grows up. Tommy is, of course, his idol. Tommy is the idol of the whole golfing world. So he's following Tommy around like a puppy dog the whole round. Tommy falls behind the first 18, comes charging back on the last 18 to win it in dramatic fashion over Davey. And so it, all the threads tie together, you know, and uh, it's not very long after that, 18, 18 late years later, John Ball is the one who breaks through as an Englishman to win the first Open Championship. And in particularly important that he did win it as an amateur because in England at that time, the predominant me- uh, most players were wealthy amateur men. It hadn't really seeped down into the general populace in the way it would in a very short period of time. But at that moment in time, it hadn't gone very far into English population beyond the wealthy. And John Ball is an interesting person to me because, I, Stephen, I, you know, <laughs> I don't claim to be a golf historian. I don't, I don't claim to be super well-versed in the history of the game. But that being said, you know, I, I know a lot of these historical figures, but it, it's honestly not somebody that just jumps to the forefront, right? When we talk about the most important golfers of all time and, and some of the, the bigger names through history. So, I mean, do you think, obviously people should know a lot more about John Ball. What, how, do, how do you place him in, in, in history and, and how do you think history, has history been fair to John Ball or, or should he be more renowned in your opinion? I guess I would say that I think uh, John Ball is the greatest golfer that no one's ever heard of. You know, uh, John Ball Jr. Well, first off, the breakthrough open victory is massive. You know, for all of the time that the Open was played for 30 years, amateurs competed in it every year. Once at Presswick, an amateur turned in a score of 234 for 36 holes. So the gap between the amateur player and the professional player was enormous. There was only one amateur, a a baker from Glasgow named William Dolman, who could actually compete relatively decently against pros. He actually won a tournament in 1866 at Montrose against professionals. But no other amateur even got close, and, and even Dolman didn't get very close in opens. Uh, so that, that win as an amateur in the open is very uh, a substantial accomplishment, and it, you know, it changed the world of amateur golf for an extended period of time. And many people over the next decade, decade and a half, amateurs were quite competitive in the open. You know, for one 10-year period, they won three opens. Uh, which, which is uh, in spite of probably being 18 or 20% of the field most times. So uh, they did uh, phenomenally well. Uh, Ball also, but the thing about Ball that I think really ought to be remembered is any list of great match play golfers in the history of the game has to have John Ball in the top five. John Ball won 99 matches in the amateur championship over his career. He won the amateur eight times, eight times times Bobby Jones would you read anything by Bobby Jones he will tell you the most difficult tournament to win is the amateur championship because you got to win seven 18 hole matches in a row and then a 36 hole final and any anybody you know any half decent golfer can get on a heater for seven or eight holes in an 18 hole match and put you away and you know that happened to Bobby himself uh 
when uh, Johnny Goodman um, knocked him out of the amateur championship in 1929, I believe it was, out in uh, Pebble Beach. So to win the amateur championship eight times, including when he was 50, uh, when Phil became the oldest winner of a major championship, it was John Ball that he passed. Huh. And uh, John Ball had singular match play power uh, over people. Uh, the reason he's not better known is he was unbelievably shy human being. Uh, he, if a newspaper reporter came up to him, the famous, he never let himself be interviewed for a newspaper ever. Uh, somebody asked him once and he said, well, I can't think of anything to say that your readers would find interesting. That would be the kind of reply you would get. <laughs> he didn't write a memoir. Uh, he just, he just wanted to go to his farm and hang out with his animals, especially his donkeys. He loved his donkeys. He left money to his donkeys in his will. Well, <laughs> that's really funny. Um, in in your research, did you come across what made him such an exceptional match play contestant? Because yes. it's just very interesting being a, an extremely shy, soft-spoken guy. Um, I, I'm guessing it wasn't gamesmanship or intimidation that, that he had over his, his fellow competitors. Well, he was intimidating in this sense, in the sense he was relentlessly straight and also pretty long. Uh, and especially with really long shots up to the hole. So he could hit a brassy or a clique, you know, from quite far away and land at two feet. Uh, you know, thank God, because he was not the greatest of putters. Uh, but he was just powerfully straight. And he also, he had a sort of, um, I guess you'd say a dourness about him. He was, uh, he didn't speak much to his opponent during the course of a match. But I think the thing that really set him apart in my mind was this tremendous ability to bring his player in at will. So if he falls behind, you know, he has just tremendous capacity to reel someone in and then catch him at the last. Um, and sometimes when he was at the peak of his form, he would, could just control when he felt like winning. So like if he were in a match at Hoy Lake, the hole that's closest to the clubhouse is the 16th, and it was known then as the Dunn. Uh, I think it still is. But in any case, um, he would get way ahead and then he hated to have to walk a long way without playing because he thought that was boring. So then he would just say to his caddy, let's just finish him off at the done. And then he'd lose a hole or have a bunch of holes or whatever was required. And then when he got to the 16th, he would just bang one right up to the flag, knock it in, shake hands, go in the clubhouse where he was right next door. <laughs> so he just had that tremendous power. That's I love that I love that uh, that 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 confidence. Um, well, then, okay. So John Ball is is the first Englishman to to break through in the Open, as you say, in in 1890, and then soon after, Harold Hilton wins two years later. Uh, we have John Henry Taylor winning back to back years, and then Harry Varden comes on the scene. I, I'm hoping, can you go a little bit more in depth and, and set up that radical shift that that golf or at least the Open Championship sees starting with that John Ball victory? And how, how do the Scots react to that? Quite badly, <laughs> I think is the short answer. Uh, it was astonishing how quickly England gained an upper hand uh, when you started getting English winners. So in 1890, Ball wins. Two years later at Muirfield in Scotland, Ball won in Scotland also at Presswick. So it's one thing to be beaten. It's another thing to be beaten on your home green. So you have Ball winning at, at Presswick in 1890. You have Muirfield, uh, Harry, uh, uh, Harold Hilton at Muirfield. And then at they finally, now England is already growing so rapidly, Randy, by 1894, the Open is held in England for the first time. And that's when John Ball, oh, John Henry Taylor wins at Royal St. George's there at Sandwich, where they held it in 1894. And, you know, of course, the Scots were a little bit more dismissive of that because it was on an English green and they didn't know, you know, they just, then he came home to St. Andrews. And you can't be more central, uh, more heart of Scotland than St. Andrews. And nobody felt uh, that Ball would be able, uh, that he'll, excuse me, Taylor would be able to repeat there at St. Andrews in 1895. And he did, you know, he, he won convincingly. And so very rapidly, um, you know, by 1893, Willie Octorloney wins the amateur, the open championship as a Scotsman. 
but it's from there till James Braid wins in 1901 that another Scotsman wins. The English just keep on winning between the amateurs and the and the English professionals. The English tide comes up really fast. Uh, all the great the newspapers of Scotland are saying that you know. Uh, our men have got to look to their laurels and, uh, you know, with competitors like Ball and Hilton, you know, they're not going away, you know. So it was an agony that the, that the uh, Claret Jug continued to go south in that way. It was a serious, uh, a serious agony for the Scots. Well, and, and not to jump ahead of ourselves, but it, it's really, um, in some respects, kind of the, the, the beginning of the end for Scottish domination at the Open. Um, you said James Braid wins in 1901 to, to break a string of, of Englishmen and Scotland enjoys victories, uh, main, many of them by James Braid in the ensuing years. But outside of him, I think only two other Scotsmen win, um, Really, well, I guess then George Duncan right after the end of World War One, but then we're coming up to modern times with with Sandy Lyle and and the like. Yes. So this was really um, a, a sea change that would would continue on to present day. Yes, you know, it just was a thing. You know, beyond the fact that uh, it's an it, it ended up being a numbers game, just as America and Britain would be too. You know, uh, the English had so many more golfers that it's only stands to reason that the number of great golfers they would produce would be higher. Uh, and, you know, Scotland also, you have to keep in mind too, that a lot, Scotland was the productivity center of golf. So a lot of Scotsmen left to go to where there were jobs elsewhere. Uh, you know, Carnoustie alone sent 400 professionals overseas to become golf pros in this era. Hmm. And so a lot of the best Scottish players drained off to get better opportunities financially, which they could get by traveling to America or to, you know, South America where golf was growing, to Africa, to Australia, any of these places. Scottish professionals often went there. Most English clubs at the beginning got Scottish professionals. And so those men weren't competing as much in the open because they were uh, quite quite uh, busy making money. You know, and Scottish club makers were overwhelmed. Willie Park, basically, after John Ball won in 1890, Willie Park Jr., pretty much didn't have time to play golf for like three years because he was just so busy making clubs for Englishmen that uh, he, he couldn't afford to give, you know, to go out and play. So it was, a, it was a, you know, a, a just an overwhelming tide in the end. The Scots did actually pretty great at, at trying to fight it off, um, uh, but they just, there weren't enough of them. And w- what was interesting though, Randy, is if there were, John Laley once, uh, who was a great amateur player, Uh, and the inventor, actually, of what we now know as the Varden Grip. But in any case, John Lele was interviewed once about whether Scotsmen are afraid of the English. And he said, well, you know, there are too many of them, but if you take their best against our best, I think we can hold our own. So there became a big hue and cry for an international match, first with amateurs. And that, that actually was, the international amateur match was dominated by Scotsmen over the years. So they were, uh, in a small group, able to hold off the English, but not at large. Th- that was not true of the professional match. The professional match was more one-sided in the English way because there just got to be, you know, the number of clubs in England pretty soon dwarfed Scotland. Uh, so the number of English professionals dwarfed the number of Scottish professionals. And uh, that, that, that tie just was not, couldn't be held back. And then, of course, like you said, America starts to to get the golf bug and and really explodes a, across the ocean as well. It's amazing how fast America crushes Britain. <laughs> I mean, you know, basically, Britain is top of the heap, but when the war comes, and of course, six years of not having any golf in Britain is it was pretty pretty tough deal for their players, especially people like George Duncan, who might have had a much greater career had six years of his prime not been taken from him. But literally within a few years after the end of the war, America has become dominant and it'll be the same situation as it was with the Scots before any person from Britain is able to take the open. Uh, You know, there's a long dark night there before Henry Cotton in 1934 after Arthur Havers wins in 1923. That's the last Scotsman. So it's the same thing repeated. Just uh, now it's America crushing them. Well, let me ask you this. Um, you said John Ball, you know, probably the, the greatest golfer that nobody really knows about. What what other characters and people most surprised you, either 
good surprises, learning about their their golf prowess or some off the course stuff, uh, or maybe you know disappointed you with with some of their character or or behavior. Um, I, I'm curious who else stands out from your book as kind of people you think um, we should know about. Well, I would say uh, the first person that that uh, that really everybody should know about is Freddie Tate, the great Scottish player. He was died young, like Tommy did. Uh, but what a swashbuckling, dynamic figure he was. Uh, he was uh, a soldier in the Black Watch, which is uh, one of the more prominent regiments of the Scottish infantry and uh, uh, Scottish army, I should say. And um, you know, he was just a cheerful, gallant you know, light of triumph in his eye type of a player, really long, one of the very first bombers. I think Horace Hutchinson said that uh, when he was a young man, his ambition seemed to be to drive every hole at St. Andrews in one. <laughs> and uh, there's a great story about he, he uh, of course, if you're swinging that hard, some of your shots don't go straight. Uh, he hit one through a guy's top hat, literally went right through the top of his top hat and destroyed the hat. So he had to buy the guy another hat. And he went to moan, bemoan his fate to old Tom. And Tom just said, well, Master Freddy, be happy. It's a, just a top hat, not an oak coffin you've got to pay for. <laughs> so that, that was the way Freddy was. So he's somebody that I was just enchanted by, and I think everyone is. And obviously, people who die tragically young, he was killed in the Boer War uh, in sort of a heroic way um, for a not too great cause. But in any case, uh, loved him. Harold Hilton, I think, is a person people don't know enough about. He's one of the great thinkers about golf ever, a lovely writer. Uh, his instructional books um, are really interesting in the sense of he was an incredibly, had incredible control of his golf ball. He could hit a slice or a draw or whatever he wanted at any time. And his whole instructional book is basically how do you ride the wind? So if the wind is blowing over your right shoulder, hit this shot. If it's blowing over your left shoulder, hit this shot. You get extra distance. But his mind is working like that. One of the great thinkers of the game became the editor of Golf Illustrated. So fascinating figure there. I mentioned Horace Hutchinson earlier. And of course, Darwin, the figure of all figures from this age to me, uh, the great golf writer. And he started covering it for the Times in the 1908, I believe it was. And uh, so, you know, those ones, and, you know, obviously Varden, Taylor, and Braid, uh, but I think they're the most widely known figures from this age. I think part of what's interesting about that too, Randy, is that people know them, but they don't know the story. Right, you know? right. They're, they're just kind of names, right? Or yes. we know Varden, hey, won the, the Open Championship six times, but right. we, we lack the context. And that's where I'm like, my hand is up there. I, I lack the context. So... Getting you know, to it's read. so funny because yeah. no one, no one thought Varden would be anything. His own father would say, "Yeah, it's you know." He has a brother named Tom who was quite a good player too, and his father said, "Oh, Harry might win the trophies, but it's Tom who plays the golf." And uh, you know, he was underrated a lot at the beginning. When he won his first Open, not one single person watched him putt out. Huh. Harold Hilton remarks on that because he was paired with Hilton. Hilton's like, "You get, you might not believe this today, but no one watched us. Not one, one spectator came up and said, "Oh, who's that? Are you playing with?" He said, "Harry Varden." He goes, "Huh." Never heard of him, walked away. Yeah. So, you know, just Varden came on the scene quite expect, unexpectedly. But, you know, in uh, in the years 1898 and 1899, which I don't think any modern player knows this, Varden went on a winning streak unlike anything I've ever seen or heard of. He uh, and, and even Byron Nelson is pales by comparison. So over a two-year period, he played in 17 professional golf tournaments, Harry Varden. He won 14 of those, and the other three times he finished second. Uh, so <clears throat> it's just an absurd performance, and that was the thing that catapulted him to a level of fame that caused uh, Spalding to issue the Varden Flyer and Varden Golf Clubs and have him come and tour the United States, which is a super pivotal moment in U.S. golf history and world golf history, honestly, as Varden spends most of the year of 1900 <clears throat> in the United States. And, uh, you know, it's just, it's a, quite a spectacle and it, it leads directly to Francis. We met that trip of Varden's. It's amazing how, you know, you just start peeling the onion and, and this leads to that and, th- and that leads to this and, and, and all of that. It's, it's really quite something. Everybody, Randy here. Sorry to interrupt, but one more sponsor to thank today. And that is Roback. Roback Activewear. They have been gaining traction big time. 
We love the fit and feel of their gear. The quality is top-notch. I want to talk to you about three of their products today. First, their performance polos. They fit so much better than your typical boxy polos, and they have it all design-wise. Fire prints, classic stripes, simple solids. The floorway stretch material is next level and wrinkle-free, and the collars never lose their shape. Combine all of it, and that is why Roback polos are unmatched. Second, Roback's Performance Q-Zips are a game-changer when it comes to fall golf. They're so soft, you'll be throwing darts all day. Perfect for a crisp early morning 18, a run around the block, a day in the office, or a night out. Truly the definition of versatile. And then third, Roback's Performance Hoodies are legitimately the most comfortable hoodies we've worn on the course and off of it. They are hands down the softest, stretchiest hoodies in golf. These things are just asking to be worn out on the links. Listeners, use the code TRAP, T-R-A-P, on Roback.com for a generous 20% off your first order through the end of this week. That's spelled R-H-O-B-A-C-K.com, and that's 20% off all polos, Q-zips, hoodies, and tees with code TRAP. Trust us when we say you can't beat Roback. Check them out now. Thank them so much for being a sponsor of the TRAP Draw. And now back to my conversation. I wanted to go back. You mentioned earlier about how smart people have always been drawn to golf and and consumed by golf. I'm curious why you think that is. Boy, that is a question uh, for the ages there. Um, I think part of it is just, you know, the people who uh, played golf in the early days were, were wealthy gentlemen primarily. And all of those people uh, went to what you would call a public school in Britain, which means a very expensive private school like Eton or Harrow <laughs> or whatever. And the education those people got staggers the imagination, honestly, because uh, one of the things I feel like I've had to do to learn to document the history of this period is to do what I call speak English public schoolboy, because there's all kinds of Latin expressions that they just assume that you know. Anybody writing from that era assumes that you know Latin, that you know Greek, that you're familiar with all the operas of the world, and they're just incredible Renaissance men as far as their level of education is concerned. Uh, and those were the people who were drawn to and were playing golf. I think it's important to note that like the first real amateur competition in the history of the game predates the amateur championship itself by seven years, and that is the Oxford versus Cambridge University match that started in 1878. That was really, really big for golf because golf was still new in England then. I mean, if you carried your clubs on a train, someone would look at you like you were crazy. What are those things? Uh, but when Oxford and Cambridge had adopted it, well, that meant that all future leaders of Britain would be exposed to golf, if not play golf. Yeah. And um, so uh, that's a big part of it. And the people who... The most influential group of people in the early history of golf was the Oxford and Cambridge Golf Society that was founded by John Lowe and a few others. John Lowe being one of the pivotal players in the golden age of architecture revolution that unfolds in the early 1900s. So those people were the people most engaged with golf. And of course, golf being their principal passion, they naturally wanted to apply what they knew about a certain field to making golf better. Uh, this applied especially to agronomy. The amount of progress that gets made in grass types, what you can do with the mower, how you can condition a golf course is very, very significant all through this age. And a lot of that comes from smart members of the Oxford and Cambridge Golfing Society. And uh, the same is true of ball manufacture, club manufacture. The number of patents that issued for golf were so frequent that Golf Illustrated had like a regular patent report. <laughs> where they uh, reported on all the new patents that had been issued since the last time the magazine came out, you know. So it was a, it was a, a period of complete revolution in terms of people thinking of new things to to create, and many of which have had a truly lasting impact on on the game. Well, and that's a good segue into um, the technology aspect. That was another thing that that you mentioned prior was. You know, this is a a very defining time for technological advancements and and kind of what golf was and and wanted to be and what what it would become. Um, there's so many like different questions I could ask you, I guess. But but uh, what I'm really curious to know is 
applying it, I guess, to the conversation that we're having today, what's your perspective on our conversations today about, you know, the ball and the equipment and, and you know, is, is golf straying from what this idea of what we think it should be? H- how do you view that debate knowing all of the history and, and these debates have been had numerous times throughout the years? I mean, wh- where do you shake out on all of that? And is anything today markedly different than the debates that have been going on since, you know, the the late 19th century? You know, Randy, I would say that the arguments are exactly the same as they (laughs) were uh, when the rubber core ball was introduced to, to replace the Haskell ball. And that is different than the arguments that existed when the gutty replaced the feather ball. Those arguments, you know, the feather ball went just as far as a gutty. Maybe, you know, in fact, the longest drive ever hit was hit with a feathery, not with a gutty uh, in that era. So there was there was some the gutty was better in many, many respects, but mainly it was better for price. And the, the makers of feather balls objected to the gutty because they thought it would crush their livelihood when they didn't realize that it would, in fact, make them much wealthier because they could sell in much greater volume. And I don't think at that age of history, people understood the volume equation quite the way Walmart does today. But so, so that, that was more of an economic argument. When the Haskell ball was introduced, and basically Walter Travis won in the United States amateur with it in 1901. But the first time it was played with in Britain was in 1902. And that year, a 53-year-old man won the amateur championship and was one of the few people playing with the Haskell ball. And uh, almost no pros played with it in the open. And almost all of them had spoken out against it vociferously, including the winner of the open, Alexander Sandy Hurd. Sandy Hurd had at once been quoted as saying, I hope every player plays in it except for me. <laughs> and, uh, you know, plays with, uh, plays with one except for me and then I can win. Well, what happened there was he showed up at Hoylake and he was playing a practice round with John Ball of all people. John Ball, the traditionalist, happens to be using a Haskell ball and says, hey, try this. He tries it. He's like, oh my God. <laughs> and he goes right to the pro shop afterwards and buys three or the last three or four <laughs> on hand. And he's then he's one of the only pros playing with it in the, in the tournament he ends up winning. And that's his only open. Not that he wasn't worthy of other opens. He just had a bad habit of collapsing in the final holes, to be honest with you. So... Uh, you know, when that happens, that prompts a huge argument about the future of the game because the, the, the Haskell ball went way farther than the gutty. And not only that, when it landed, it ran like crazy. They first called it the bounding billy because it would, when it hit, it would run uh, much, much more so than a gutty would. So you had a situation there where all the golf courses in the land, their hazards became obsolete like overnight. And so in a lot of ways, it's the same argument that we have today. Uh, John Lowe and a man named Muir Ferguson, who is a redoubtable amateur of uh, Scotland, they both put forward a motion to the Rules Committee of the St. Andrews to make the gutty the, prof- the professional ball uh, for all time and to ban the Haskell ball in all competitions. And it, it got defeated, uh, actually, fairly soundly. And so in, in that right there, technology ended up winning the day. The, you know, the general idea was – Advancement is fun for amateurs. Advancement is good for the vast majority of the people who play the game. And I would say that's the prevailing opinion today. The prevailing opinion today is that balls that go farther and clubs that go farther make the game more fun for the vast majority of people who play it. Yes, they have destroyed classic courses for the professional, uh, but I would still say that that was the argument that carried today then. And I think if there was a a vote of the nation of golfers now, that argument would still carry the day. My own personal belief is that the ball goes way too far. Uh, it's not fun to watch a game that's every time driver and wedge. Uh, and that there's, you know, the strategic aspects of golf architecture have been completely nullified by the current circumstance, in my view, except on a course like Royal Melbourne West where, you know, the ground is so firm and the ball runs all over that uh, you actually, it's not about, you can't win that same way. So, and Tiger schooled everybody when when they were there for the President's Cup, and it just goes to show you that skill will out there. But so, no, I think the ball goes too far. I'm in favor of a rollback. I'm in favor of decreasing club head size too. And honestly, I've, I've not watched as much men's professional golf because of it. I've leaned more toward the LPGA 
because the, the that that golf is played more within the strategic framework of the golf course than than men's golf is now. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, I mean, it sounds like the exact bifurcation debate that I feel like we... They, they actually did not use the word bifurcation, <laughs> yeah. but that's what they thought. Yeah. Let amateurs play with whatever equipment they want, but pros have to... And amateurs in competition, you know, amateurs playing a friendly for a crown at the, at the, at the club, that's, that's, not, that's separate was even... Because the amateur championship then was a major championship and was, I would say, considered by most people who were in the golf world then to be the most important championship going. Fascinating. Yeah. I can just imagine, you know, 150 years from now, they'll probably still be having the same <laughs> the same debates and arguments about all this it's stuff. It's funny. You know, what put the thing over the top for the amateurs was probably the most famous amateur player then was a man named Arthur James Balfour, who happened to be, uh, was originally uh, Irish Home Secretary and a very popular politician and one of the very first prominent politicians to take up golf, sort of like the Eisenhower of this era, you know? And uh, they asked him in the heat of the debate, what did he think about the whole Haskell controversy? And he basically took the point of view that, of course, he was a, not a very great player himself. And the Haskell probably dramatically improved his game. Uh, and he was he strongly came out in favor of the Haskell. And that's, you know, technology is something that helps everybody. And I'm for that. So it's interesting that, you know, that that's one of the, the keys to how it ended up being won. Yeah, yeah. Um, what, uh, the, your book is, um, relatively new. So I'm, I'm operating under the assumption people have not picked it up yet. Uh, it's of course a great idea for, for a holiday gift for any golf nut, uh, in your life. But what else would you like to tease to people, uh, convey to folks uh, about this, you know, age of glory, 1864 to 1914, uh, to that, that kind of sets up, you know, your story and, and this work. You know, I say, Randy, I think that uh, people will be amazed by the quality of golf that these people were able to play. And one of the things I really work hard to do in the books is to make a modern player understand what the score means there. Because you might not think 82 is a great score, but in that age, 82 was a brilliant score under certain circumstances. So I try to, to make it clear to people what brilliant golf these these uh, players were able to accomplish. I think that's one of the things. I think, you know, it puts a story with the names. And, um, you know, you may know who the Varden and Taylor and Braid are, but you might not realize that James Braid's 10-year period between 1901 and 1910 is one of the greatest stretches of golf ever put together by any person. He wins nine major championships in that nine-year period, and uh, half of them are stroke play championships, and the other half are match play championships. And uh, so he was dominant in every form of the game in that period, and I think it illuminates some of the greatness of these players. And I would say the thing that a person who hasn't read one of my books needs to know is that, yes, there are notes galore, and yes, there's a bibliography that's authoritative and long, but the whole reason that I started doing this was because it drove me crazy that you could ask any Yankee fan in the world about the Yankees and they could run off Ruth's statistics or Garrett's statistics without a blink of an eye. Whereas golfers, for whatever reason, even great players are mostly ignorant of the history of their game. And honestly, most modern commentators of, about the game on, on uh, broadcasts and stuff are very unfamiliar with any history of the game that occurs prior to, say, Bobby Jones or Ben Hogan. And I think the reason for that is a lot of golf history has been written in a very academic and tedious way that only a person like myself, who's determined to learn enough to be able to tell it to you as a story, uh, can really can really warm up to. So my whole mission has been to try to write the history of the game in an authoritative way that doesn't ever cross over any line like making up quotes or making up scenes or any of that stuff that what I call historic novels do, which are fine. They have a place in the world. I'm just trying to write true history as a narrative so that you can get your arms around it. Uh, and also, you know, conscious of the history that occurred before and the history that occurred after and the way each moment connects backward and forward to that and to help you, hopefully, as a golfer and a reader, understand how your game 
came to be the way it is as you tee it up here Saturday morning. That's really beautiful. I, I love that description. And I, I think it it's a great segue to a question I wanted to ask you anyway, which is the the research on your part is extensive. What What is that process like? Are you trying to get your hands on a lot of articles and books? And is that something you can do from home through the magic of, you know, your computer and an internet connection? Did you have to travel much to, to research this book, to, to find some of these works? How, how, what was the process like compiling this research for you? It's often very difficult to find certain books that you need uh, because they can be quite rare. Uh, but, you know, there, is, there are services that will reprint classic books for you on demand you don't get every single thing in them, like a fold-out map or whatever, but you get all the words. So, for instance, I obtained all 23 volumes of the golfing annual in that manner as reprints mm. uh, that I could get for like $30. So, I can't – and the golfing annual includes essays by famous people, coverage of every year's amateur and open championship in great detail with all the scores and everything like that day by day. So, all the data you would need to write something intelligent about it. Um but like I think at this point in time, I've read around 275 books about the history of the game in various capacities, architecture, instruction, uh, genuine history, memoirs, club histories, et cetera, et cetera. So most of my knowledge is gained that way. And then from that, I kind of have an understanding of what the story is that I'm trying to get enough detail to tell in this narrative way that I like to tell it. From there, I can then zero in on certain uh, what you would call primary research, like the original newspaper coverage or whatever. And so it does require travel some of the time. So for instance, obviously I need to have played the golf courses that the action takes place at in the story, or as many of them as financially feasible. <laughs> in the case of the long golden afternoon, that meant traveling to England to play Hoy Lake in particular, and to see the clubhouse and to understand the history of the place and to play Royal St. George's, where the first Open Championship and many of the great championships and events in the book take place at mostly, as far as England is concerned, those two places. I had already, in the course of researching the Tommy book, gone there to um, see Tommy's childhood places, where he went to school, uh, where his parents lived when he was a child, where he lived as an adult. Uh, you know, his tomb and so forth and so on. And while I am in Scotland, I always block out days to be in the library. You hate to be there with all these wonderful golf courses and spend an entire week at the National Library of Scotland, but that's what's required. So I go there, but when I go there, I have a, a targeted set of newspaper pieces that I'm looking for so I can get the work done in a fairly condensed framework. You can search pretty well on newspapers online now, but some of the time uh, you need to go uh, places where they have specific uh, doc documents. So <clears throat> I do it that way. I have a number of subscriptions for research. I've accumulated a research library of my own somewhat in the process of doing this. So it has cost me a fair amount to get the two books written. And, you know, the thing about it is, and this is why I'm so grateful to be on the podcast, it's very difficult to sell books of what you, these are kind of niche books, honestly, if you're getting right down to cases. So I'm hoping, <clears throat> my goal is always just to end up at least even. My wife finds it enervating if I lose money writing golf books. So I'm hoping that I will, I'm pretty close to even now. And I think this new book might actually uh, get me up to a couple cents an hour for work if, uh, if it makes profit. But um, so it's, uh, it's, it's just a labor of love thing that you do because you like writing because you love the history of the game and you would like to get other people to love it in the way that you do. Yeah, that's unbelievable. Well, hopefully, you know, hopefully you got to see some of those great courses at least a couple times, you know, Hey, I, I might need one more spin around, you know, uh, I tell you, I've uh, already had my reward <laughs> yeah. but because of the Tommy book. I got invited in June of last year, uh, by a place called Bonnie Wee golf, which is, a uh, some friends of mine that own a luxury touring company there. And they created something called the old Tom Morris golf trail, which is 18 golf courses designed or enhanced by old Tom himself. And they had me come over and play all 18 and covered my expenses. So I feel like that's above break even there by any standard that you use. So I'm doing a thing for them now on the old Tom Morris trail. And then I'm going to start on another book right after that. 
Well, that that okay. So that was actually going to be one of my my final questions. You had said that the seed for the long golden afternoon was planted as you were working on the Tommy book. Uh, what's next for you? I I would naturally think maybe you you keep progressing through through golf's history. Uh, but I'm curious what's what the future holds for you. Well, like I say, uh, this sometime this summertime, I'll, I'll have published a magazine. Uh, uh, called the Golf Courses of the Old Tom Morris Trail, which will be about the individual courses and a big essay about Old Tom and the way he found golf courses in the natural landscape. So that's my immediate project. But the book I want to do next is a book about the early history of women's golf. I feel like, well, number one, I've, I'm, I'm really into the LPGA now for the reasons that we talked about a little earlier. And just, there are just some amazing golfers there. The way that the women's game is so worldwide uh, now and I feel like it's really turning a corner. Uh, so I've been very interested in it. Part of the long golden afternoon has to deal with the, the way women organize themselves in golf and the influence that had over how men organize themselves in golf. In fact, it was women who invented the handicapping system. That is the basis of all handicapping systems today. They were not shockingly quite a bit more organized than men. Um, <laughs> In any case, uh, I, I became interested in their history then. And so I'm going to write a book about that. But the idea is that the book will be built around a match that takes place in St. Andrews in 1929 between Joyce Weathered, the great British lady golfer, and Glenna Collette Vare of the United States. Uh, at that time in history, women's golf is pretty much concentrated in those two places. So by bringing the history of the game up through these two characters to that point in St. Andrews in 1929, uh, you can you can get a pretty good narrative overview of the history of the game, women's game. And uh, so that that's the game plan. I love that. Well, I will, as soon as, as soon as you're ready to speak about that, I can't wait to have you back, Stephen. I did want to, I should have asked this at the very start, uh, the title, The Long Golden Afternoon. I was curious about that. Where, where does that title come from? This is another great question because figuring out the right title for your book is a hard thing. Uh, I'm such a Bernard Darwin addict that a lot of, if you, uh, the, the, you know, my titles, both the ones I had for this book were, were, were came from Darwin, to be honest with you. Uh, one of the great moments in the book is a match that takes place in 1899 between John Ball and Freddie Tate for the final of the amateur championship at, uh, at Presswick. And, uh, you know, Bernard Darwin thought that was the greatest golf match he'd ever seen, even though he covered golf up till 1953. So he had a sentence that said, uh, one must be allowed to be a little obstinate about the gods of one's youth. And I shall always maintain that that was the greatest match I ever saw. And so my first title was the gods of our youth, because uh, I, I just loved that phrase. And then, you know, I always have a process where when I'm done with the manuscript or done to the point where I feel like I could show it to another human being without total humiliation. Uh, I then send it around to test readers. So I have seven or eight test readers look at it. Most of them said, this book is the story of an age and the title sounds like it's the story of individual players. Mm. And I thought, hmm, okay, yeah, that's true. So now I got to think of another title. And I happen to uh, be, there's a biography of James Braid by Bernard Darwin also. And I happen to be rereading the last chapter or two of that uh, to try to check on a specific fact. And um, there's a sentence there in which uh, Darwin says, and then came the war and the long golden afternoon was over. And I thought, ah, that is a title that speaks to an age. And so uh, I stole that one from Darwin instead of the earlier one. Well, I think it, it's it's a wonderful title. I, I love that process. Um it's a beautiful book. I wanted to mention that you have uh, kind of in the middle of the book, you, you include a lot of pictures of many of these main characters and, and folks and events with which uh, or of which you write. Yeah, Stephen, it, it's just a, a, a wonderful work of golf history. And as you said, you, you can't read it and not come away with newfound knowledge, appreciation and just context for uh, where we are today with the game. And as you said, you know, uh, even brings meaning to that next match uh, at your club on the weekend. So I want to congratulate you for another awesome book. Uh, where is the best place that folks can 
pick it up? What 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 is most beneficial for you? In the United States, there's only one way to get it, and that's online. If you are not published by a U.S. publisher of some consequence, uh, like you know one of the big big publishing houses like Random House, you can't get in the United States bookstore. Uh, it won't happen. So you can only buy it on Amazon or Barnes and Noble in the United States. In Scotland, where my books are published by Berlin Company of Edinburgh, Scotland, and they are available anywhere in a bookstore and all all through the UK. Uh, and I prefer that you buy it in a bookstore because I'm a big lover of bookstores. Uh, but you can't do that in the United States. You know, Back Nine Press, where my buddy Jim Hartzell's book, When Revelation Comes, you know, you can't get that in a bookstore either. So those of us who don't get published by big U.S. publishers, we need people like Big Randy to help us get folks to go buy it online. Well, it's my pleasure to offer any little help that I can. Like I said, it's um, getting to chat with you guys who put in the hard work and, and write these books that I really enjoy. It's a treat for me, Stephen. This was no different. I could just sit back and listen to you teach me all about golf history. It's it's truly amazing. Uh, you, you have an encyclopedic knowledge. It's it's a ton of fun to get to chat with you, and I look forward to doing it again. Thanks so much for having me. Deeply appreciate it. Favorite trapper, the absolute truth, yeah, no joke. Who 